0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm chapter 6. So we'll be spending some, several weeks uh, this summer, just kind of walking through the Psalms. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we we come before your presence this morning. And Lord, we... Do not need to be reminded that life is hard. Sometimes we make life harder just by ourselves. Sometimes there are things that happen to us with outside of our control that just make life that much more difficult. But Father, we, Father, we pray and we ask that you would remind us this morning of your grace. Remind us of your kindness. Remind us, Lord, of your fatherly care. We may not be able to run away from all our troubles. Yet at the same time, there is nowhere that we can go where your presence is not near. So we thank you, God, that you are with us this morning, that you are with your people every single day of their lives. So help us to look to your word. Help us to be reminded of how good you are, even in the seasons of life where life is just incredibly, incredibly hard. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. The Psalms have always been a favorite among Christians throughout church history, and there are many reasons why. You simply need to read them to see how good the Psalms are, and people read them for many different reasons. If, you're, if you like literature, if you like reading, if you, stu- if you like studying words and sentences and paragraphs, then you really like the Psalms because of its rhetorical effects, because of the way that it uses language to communicate truth, to express emotions. We like reading the psalms because they often proclaim the Lord's salvation. They remind us of how good God is. Especially when we need to be reminded of how good God is. We like reading the psalms because they are oftentimes filled with so much hope. And the psalms are just easy to pick up. In the busyness of life, whether you have two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes to spare, and you're wanting to pick up something in the Word to read, Oftentimes, you might find yourself going to the Psalms. You just need to pick up one Psalm and find hope and encouragement. The thing about the Psalms is that the Psalms give us just a wide range of human experiences, from personal tragedy, to false accusations, to betrayal, to the consequences of one's sins. They also give us a wide range of human emotions from joy and gladness and gratitude to sorrow and distress, frustration, anxiety, and even anger. And yet we often, I think, find ourselves reading through all sort of the the hard stuff in the Psalms to kind of get to the good stuff, right? We look to the Psalms because they give us hope, they give us encouragement, but oftentimes when we read the Psalms, they come packaged with some hard things. And we, at times, might find ourselves just kind of wanting to quickly read through that stuff and kind of get maybe to the end of the psalm to get to the part where it's really encouraging. I get that. I definitely understand that. I definitely have been there. We tend to think of the psalms like we might at times think about our personal suffering. As we just want to get it over with. We want it to be done. We want it to look to the other side and get to the part where we are restored, where we are healed, where everything is right again. We tend to think of the other side of suffering. We tend to even try to forget the things that cause us distress. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to perhaps entertain ourselves binge watching Netflix or whatever it might be in order to not think about the thing that is causing us distress or turmoil or anxiety or sorrow. We might even try to remain in that sorrow. Right, a kind of a refusal to, to move on, to, uh, to a refusal to even find any kind of hope. And that's no good place to be either. But you and I both know that anguish is a reality, suffering is a reality. Whether it's the loss of a child, whether it's divorce, whether it's betrayal, whether it's shattered hopes and dreams, the Psalms are wonderful for us because they give us words to express our anguish. And this Psalm is actually no different. And this Psalm, in particular, is helpful to those ends. See, the Psalms demand to be studied and to be thought about. If you, don't, if you try to rush through the difficult things in the Psalms, and you're trying to get to the good stuff, the better stuff, then really you'll miss out on just how good the Lord is. To really get a sense of the joy that there is in the Psalms, you have to spend some time thinking about and dwelling upon the hard experiences that the author is writing about. When we do give our thoughts and attention to the suffering of the author, I think it further enhances our joy in the Lord Jesus So, as we turn to Psalm chapter 6, I think there are several lessons for us to take away from this particular psalm, and the first has to do with our pleading before the Lord. In verse 1, the psalmist, who's understood to be King David, writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Now, when reading this psalm from beginning to end, one might come to the conclusion that the psalmist might be experiencing the consequences of a personal sin. You might take that from reading the words rebuke or discipline. That what in the world you might think is this, had the psalmist done what sin had he committed whether it's against God whether it's against his neighbor, that sort of merited some kind of consequence that brought his this this moment in his life when he is in anguish and in sorrow. But I don't think that the psalmist is actually describing a moment in his time when he has committed sin he's fallen, and he's suffering the consequences of it, namely because typically in the Psalms. When the psalmist or the writer is experiencing or writing about his experience of of a personal tragedy or the consequences of his actions, there's usually a a confession of sin. But in this psalm, we don't find any confession of sin. And so actually, there's, there's really no telling from the context, from the little information that we have, what exactly the writer is experiencing. We don't know what his tragedy is like. Well, we do have a sense of what it's like, but we don't know what exactly the tragedy is. I mean, he is a king, and being in that position brings many enemies. Maybe he's being persecuted by his enemies. Maybe it's false accusations. But we just have no idea. But that might not be a bad thing. I think, actually, it's a good thing. That we don't know exactly what his trial is. We don't know exactly what he's going through. It's unidentifiable, and I think it's a good thing for us because it means that no matter what experience you're going through, no matter what your tragedy is, no matter what trial you are experiencing, you can read this psalm into your own experience. Whereas if he had identified exactly what his tragedy was, that you might be tempted to think that, well, his situation has nothing to do with me. Let me look to another psalm that might have to do with more of my personal situation but this psalm can actually speak directly into whatever situation you might be experiencing now or experience in the future. Now, he says he prays, he pleads to the Lord to not be rebuked in the Lord's anger or to be disciplined in his wrath. Notice that he's not praying Lord, don't rebuke me. He's not praying, Lord, don't discipline me. He's just praying, Lord, don't discipline me in your wrath. But what's the alternative to being disciplined in wrath and anger? The alternative is to be disciplined in love. So the psalmist is pleading that the Lord, even in the midst of his personal discipline, the Lord would still do so in love, that the Lord would show him his steadfast love. Or his suffering son. Hebrews twelve six tells us, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. Why is discipline even necessary? Or right, if you know anything about God, if you read through the scriptures, right, you know that God is good, that God is caring, that God is love. Even first John tells us that. So why is it necessary for his sons and daughters to be disciplined? Well, one reason being because he is a good father, right? As parents, you are expected to discipline your children as an act of love because discipline essentially will save their life. Through discipline, they are you're teaching them the consequences of, wrong, of wrongdoing. You, you're teaching them to do what is right. But here in the psalm, right, we, I don't think we have any reason to think that the psalmist or the writer has committed a sin, and therefore he's being consequenced or disciplined by the Lord. But the Lord disciplines for other reasons besides sin. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter writes these words to Christians who are suffering on account of the gospel. They're not necessarily being persecuted physically, they're not being tormented for their faith, but the kind of, of persecution that they're experiencing is more like social, being socially ostracized, perhaps being publicly shamed because of their Christian identity. And Peter says that these are trials, and the purpose for these trials is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen Somebody who is, uh, who is in the trade of metal or a metalsmith and, just, and, and, their, and their experience of, of just hammering away at a piece of metal. Right, there's a, I forget what it's called. There's a show on Netflix. It's just about this where you contestants go and, and to try to, uh, for a prize and they, take, they tell them, take all these random pieces of metal and then fashion it into the, this broad sword. And you see these pieces of metal and they, they, they melt it and they, and they take it to the hammer. Right, They put it on the anvil, and they hammer it away over and over and over and over again to give it shape, to mold it into what they envision. And I think Peter is kind of describing that experience for us. And that's what the, the discipline of the Lord looks like at times in our personal lives. To where our faith, which is a precious metal, more precious than, than gold itself, that god takes it through the fire and he takes the hammer and he hammers it away over and over and over again but it's never void of his love and he does it because he cares and he does it because he loves you and he does it because he wants your faith to be strengthened and every every strike of the hammer it hurts But if you know God, you know that He cares. You know that He loves you. And that He wants what's best for you. Even though, right, we affirm that, we might say that to ourselves and admit to ourselves that God is good even in the midst of being hammered away the hammer of God, right? It doesn't take away from the pain. The pain still remains. The pain is real. And we see this in the psalmist. The psalmist is experiencing the discipline of the Lord. He's being strengthened in his faith. And it hurts. And it hurts badly. And so we read of his prayers of anguish. I mean, verse 6, he says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Did you see that? Do you get a sense of the the weightiness of this man's sorrow? He says, every night I flood my bed with tears. There's probably a reference there to the diluvian flood with Noah, where it's God rained upon the earth constantly 40 days and 40 nights. He might be describing his personal agony in the same way that every single day the floodgates of of my tears just keep pouring out every single day. My bed is just, my, it's just, my bed is just swimming in the flood of my tears. I am dr- drenching my couch with my weeping. Right, sometimes when we are in grief, right, it's difficult to even say anything. We remain speechless. There's just no words to describe exactly what we're going through. We can't find the words. And here in the psalm, right? in reading this man's words, reading about how the Lord dictated this man to write his personal agony, we can get a sense. Of what he's experiencing, even though we have no idea what he's going through, nor do we need to know exactly what he's going through. But many of you share that experience. Maybe right now, maybe in the past, you know exactly what he's going through. He's expressing his grief. And he's in his bed, he's in his couch, he's going in private. Sometimes we weep and we moan and we lament in front of others. But there are times when we have to get by ourselves. We get, have to get to a private place and just let out our tears. And we cry out. And he's crying out to God. you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, maybe you've experienced the same kind of grief. Life is hard. Life sometimes is filled with anguish. There is suffering, suffering in life, and that's just the way that life is. We can't escape the reality of suffering, no matter how far you try to get from everything and everyone. There is no escape. I mean, you might even be diagnosed with a terminal illness and have only months or even weeks to live, whether it's that kind of experience or something else, who do you cry out to? To whom do you lament? To whom do you moan? To whom do you weep? we all go through experiences where we have to cry out. The point is, who's listening? Or rather, who is listening that can do something about it? Who is listening that can actually help you in some way, shape, or form? That can give you comfort, or some kind of relief, or some kind of deliverance? Even Jesus himself cried out in Hebrews 5, 7, we read of his personal anguish and the cross where it says, Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, whether you're going through a tragedy now or whether you will go through a tragedy in the near future, what you need most is not deliverance from that distress. What you need more than anything else is not personal or physical healing. What you need most is a Savior. You need salvation from your sins. You need salvation from the judgment and wrath of God by turning to Jesus in faith and repentance, trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior. And in Jesus, you will have hope. In Jesus, you will have forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, you will be adapted into the family of God. In Jesus, you will have eternal life. You have the assurance that no matter what this tragedy is like, whether it takes your life or not, you have the hope, that you will one day live again in paradise with Christ. The goodness of the gospel is that even in this moment, you can cry out to God and turn to Him in faith and repentance. Sometimes when we cry out, when we are in distress, sometimes it feels like the words are just right there in the throat, and you just, you just can't get them out to verbalize them. And here's a lesson that we can take from this particular psalm, and that is that you can look to this psalm or any other psalm in those moments when you cannot find the words to express your weeping. Look to the psalms. Look to Psalm chapter 6. Let the words of Psalm 6 be the expression of your internal lament. Let those words be your words. Say those words. Read those words. Pray those words to the Lord in your anguish and distress. We can look to the Psalms to help us express our personal pain. And as you plead before the Lord, as you cry out to the Lord, another lesson we can take from the Psalms is to ground your pleas. This is what he does in verse 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And she O who will give you praise? So here we see an example of, the, of affirming a truth about God. And that truth is that the Lord is a Lord of steadfast love. The psalmist, as he's weeping, he's, he's remembering that the that God is a God of love. And that his love is faithful, that his love is steadfast, that his love continues to abide with those who cry out to him and turn to him. So his pain has not made him forget who God is. Right, and there's a lesson for us there as well, that when, when we have a personal distress, we have a tendency to study our distress rather than remembering and studying the character of God. We tend to focus on whatever it is that's causing us this tragedy or this distress to to analyze it, to study it, to ask questions. What could I have done differently? What could this person have done differently? Why am I experiencing this? Why, God, have you allowed this instead of remembering the character of God, remembering his glorious attributes, remembering the good things that the scriptures affirm about who he is, that he is a good and gracious and loving father who does not forsake his sons and daughters. This is where your theology matters. This is where you, what you believe about God is put into practice. It is the moment when you are commanded to trust in God. God says, if you believe, if you say you believe in me, then believe in me in this moment. Believe that I am still with you. Lamentations 3.17 Lamentations might as well be called the Book of Sorrow. In Lamentations 3.17, the the author writes, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Have you ever felt like that? So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction. Here comes the prayer. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There's our example of one who had this balance of studying his personal affliction but not to the neglect of the character of God. This I call to mind. This is an intentional effort that this person makes to remember God. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That the mercy of God is abounding, renewed every single morning. There is your hope. There's an intentional remembrance of the character of God. And so there is a remembrance of the character of God, but then it is a grounding of please, of personal pleas based on the praise of God. And verse. Again, verse 5. For, or because in death there is no remembrance of you. And or who will give you praise? He's praying and asking that this trial will not ultimately lead to his death. Now mind you, at this moment in salvation history, there isn't this comprehensive understanding of what heaven is, not like what we have in the New Testament. There's an understanding of the afterlife and a hope of seeing God if one believes and trusts and follows God. But he's asking that he would not ultimately end up in the place of the dead, this holding pattern where the, where the dead are held. And in this place, in this death, that is for those who remain in this holding place, there is no remembrance of God. That is, there is no remembrance of God with the intention of praising God. Right, the dead, those who remain in the dead but are not joined together with the Lord himself, that place is not a praise a place of praise and glory to God where the dead are actively giving glory and praise to God as his saints will do in heaven but ultimately he there is a desire here there is a, a prayer, a pleading to God that he would remain and continue to live and even be delivered so that he may continue to give God glory. I want to continue to live, Lord. I want to be able to come to the other side of this tragedy so that I may continue to give you praise. Right, we've, prior to this, we've walked through the book of Philippians, and we read about how the Apostle Paul was a man possessed by God. He says that to live is Christ and to die is grain that whether he is to, to live or to depart and be with Christ, it was a hard decision if it were up to him. Because no matter what, his desire was to glorify the Lord. Right? And that is ultimately the desire of every Christian, to glorify and to praise God. Isaiah 38, verse 17 to 19 says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. We have cast all my sins behind your back. For shield does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Those of a word, the words of a man who has not lost his hope in God. There's nothing wrong when pleading to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with verbalizing to God your desire to come through this ultimately for his glory. Lord, use this tragedy for your glory. Lord, let me come to the other side of it so that I may thank you, that I may praise you, that I may give you the honor due to your name for coming to me and delivering me. One commentator writes, God's mercy gets great honor when it extends great favors to great sinners. God's mercy gets great honor when it extends great favors to great sinners. Right, so we want to be healed, we want to be delivered. We want to be restored. We want this distress, whatever it might be, to be taken away for our personal well-being. But ultimately, our desire is so that we may go on and live to tell of God's faithfulness, even through the tragedy. God, let me come through the other side of this so that I can tell your people, so that I can tell those who do not know you just how good and how faithful you are. And so when we cry out to the Lord look to the Psalms, let them remind you of the goodness of God, and let that be what grounds your prayers to God. And then lastly, let those pleas transform to confidence. In verse 8, the Psalm concludes, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So The passage concludes with a confidence that he is verbalizing unto the Lord. And how, where does he get this confidence? He's getting this confidence from his relationship with God. And that is where, our, that's where we ultimately we draw our confidence from. We draw our confidence from our relationship with God that is grounded in our faith in the Lord. While discipline is certainly painful, when we remember the goodness of God, we also remember that the discipline of the Lord is never apart from His fatherly care. and He disciplines those whom He loves. Psalm 50:14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Most likely, Psalm 6 was written during the trial itself. That means that for the psalmist, as he's writing the psalm, the trial wasn't even over yet. And, and at the same time, he's still expressing a confidence in the Lord. He says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Sometimes there's nothing to say but just to cry out to the Lord. And the psalm is a comfort for you and me because as children of God, we can be confident that God hears our weeping. That even when we are in our private room, flooding our bed with tears, that God is there in the room and He hears your cries. More than that, He hears your pleas and He accepts your prayers not because of anything that you have done, not because your personal tragedy merits the attention of God, but because the Lord Jesus is your Savior, because the Lord Jesus is the one that you have chosen to follow with your life, because Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf. Because through Jesus, you have become a son or daughter of God. And for those reasons, God is with you in your moment of weeping. And he hears your cries. He hears your prayers and he accepts them. And that is where our confidence comes from. And we have hope in that. And we rejoice in that. And so we would do well to remember the character of God, remember who he is, remember his faithfulness, remember what the Lord has done, namely through sending his son to die on the cross for your sin and mine. And it's helpful when we see a brother or sister in tragedy or in turmoil or in distress, and it would be good, we would do good to one another to remind each other of the character of God. Or because if it is our tendency to give ourselves to studying the personal distress, sometimes we need somebody outside of our distress to remind us that God is with us, that God is with you, that God has not left you, that God is good, that God is faithful. And we shall look to the Psalms as our personal prayer book. That when we don't have the words to express, when we can't find the words to express our agony and distress to the Lord, go to the Psalms and let the Psalms be the words of your mouth. Hebrews twelve eleven says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's ultimately what the Lord is doing. It is painful, but remember that the Lord intends it for your good.